You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I'm going to continue the process in this podcast of releasing the upcoming book, which is tentatively called Anti-Messiah, one chapter at a time as I complete them. This chapter is continuing the section about proof texts, so it's the part two of the proof texts. Again, I don't really know what order I'm going to put all this in. I just know that I have to cover these particular topics, so I'll rearrange them as it gets closer to time to edit this. But um, I think this is a really important chapter. I discuss the seven-year covenant. I talk about the false prophet. And I also talk about Daniel 11.45, about the headquarters of the Antichrist. And I am in the process of continuing to learn about Jewish eschatology, finding all kinds of interesting things. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention real quick that I, I, I never realized how important it was and how pervasive it is in Jewish eschatology, but um, they have a view that when um, when Messiah comes and he sets up um, uh, Jerusalem as the capital city and, and everybody is essentially forced to convert to Judaism, there is an interregnum period where there is a belief that that anybody that does not convert to Judaism will have to be literally rooted out and destroyed and killed. I just was floored when I read that, but even more so when I realized that that was not a niche view. That is a consistent view of the period after Messiah comes and everybody is uh, uh, forced to, I say forced, uh, will either willingly convert to Judaism or be killed. So it's it's an interesting take on this, which uh, appears to be quite prevalent. Uh, But I am far from being ready to release a, uh, a cohesive argument about Jewish eschatology and its role in all this. Uh, it'll take some time before I get to that. But for now, we'll just continue with this. Uh, again, this is Proof Text Part 2, and I will see you on the other side. The Seven-Year Covenant. Daniel 9:27a says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Here in the last verse of Daniel chapter 9, we have a reference to the Antichrist making some kind of covenant with many. I believe that this verse can be shown to give weight to the thesis that the Antichrist will claim to be the Jewish Messiah. Even until recently, I've always assumed that this verse was talking about a, quote, seven-year peace agreement. It has become so common for people to refer to this verse as a peace treaty of some sort that I confess I sort of just took it for granted. The truth is that there is no reason to think that this covenant is speaking of a peace treaty. In all the Bible versions I have available to me, through Bible software and the internet, which is a considerable number, the word peace is not mentioned anywhere, or even directly implied. In addition, I will suggest that whatever this covenant is that the Antichrist makes with many must be something that was already in place based on the underlying Hebrew. I will begin by explaining what I think this verse is referring to, and then I will go through the individual parts of the verse to show you why. I believe this is referring to the Antichrist trying to fulfill the modern Jewish expectations of a, quote, new covenant that the Messiah will make in the last days. This concept is detailed in many places in the Old Testament, but a notable one is in Jeremiah 31.31, which states, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Both Christians and Jews believe this verse is messianic, but the Jewish view on what this new covenant is, is vastly different. 
The Jews believe this means that when the Messiah comes, he will reconfirm the covenant they already had. That is, the Messiah will make it possible for them to once again abide by the laws given to them by Moses, especially regarding the daily sacrifices. The Jewish view of the words new covenant here is no more than a, quote, renewed national commitment to abide by God's laws. Yuri Yosef, Ph.D., concludes his paper called Will the Real New Covenant Please Stand Up this way, quote, It is evident that Jeremiah's use of the term a new covenant does not involve the replacement of the eternal Torah by the New Testament, Rather, it signals a renewal of the original Sinai covenant. Jewsforjudaism.org puts it this way, quote, Jeremiah's new covenant is not a replacement of the existing covenant, but merely a figure of speech expressing the reinvigoration and revitalization of the existing covenant. Keep in mind that they would agree that this renewing of the Mosaic covenant happens when the Messiah comes. They believe that one of the ways he will do this, probably the most important way, is by the reestablishing of the sacrificial system. It is important to state that this is a rock-solid belief about the Messiah spanning almost every type of Judaism. What is so interesting is that this is exactly what Daniel 9.27 is saying when it says he shall confirm a covenant, as the New King James Version has it. This phrase, confirm a covenant, is very interesting, and the Hebrew words here are apparently difficult to translate into English. One way to illustrate this is by showing you a sample of how differently popular versions of the English Bible translate it. The Net Bible says he will confirm a covenant. The ESV says, and he shall make a strong covenant. The King James Version says, and he shall confirm the covenant. Young's literal translation says, and he hath strengthened a covenant. Notice how not just the words, but the core meaning of this text varies. In the Net Bible, he is confirming an already existing covenant. In the ESV, he makes a new, strong covenant. In the King James, he confirms the covenant, suggesting it is the Mosaic covenant. And in Young's literal translation, he is strengthening an already existing covenant. Of the 19 versions of the Bible I checked, 11 of them have the Antichrist confirming or strengthening an already existing covenant, as opposed to him making a new covenant altogether. The obvious question is, which one is right? I will add a discussion about the details of this linguistic problem in the footnotes, but I believe the Hebrew is expressing a confirming or strengthening of an already existing covenant. The reason they get the idea of this covenant being strengthened is because the word sometimes translated confirm carries the meaning of making something strong. I would even suggest that this covenant was meant to be understood as the covenant, i.e. the Mosaic covenant. There are even some translations, like the King James Version, that translate the word a as the, which suggests a reference to a particular pre-existing covenant, which contextually must be the Mosaic covenant. There seems to be confirmation that we're on the right track with this idea, because the second part of this verse says, quote, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, as if to suggest that it is obvious that the covenant being strengthened entails starting the daily sacrifices. This is because this verse is contrasting these two ideas. For example, he confirms the covenant, but then he stops the sacrifices. It presupposes that the reader understands that the covenant has to do with the daily sacrifices. If this is speaking of the Antichrist trying to fulfill the Jewish expectations of Jeremiah 31's new covenant, then the singling out of the daily sacrifice here, and in other places where this event is mentioned, is pretty interesting. Because, to put it simply, without the daily sacrifice, there is no use for any Jew to try to keep the Mosaic Covenant. It is the first and most important of all sacrifices to the Jews. It made daily atonement for their collective sin, and it's believed that this sacrifice must start again for God's blessing to rest in its fullness on the Jewish people. 
In the Jewish mind, the starting of the daily sacrifices is the tangible proof that the Messiah has come and Jeremiah 31.31 has come true. If this scenario is true, the idea that the Antichrist would announce a seven-year covenant as opposed to announcing an eternal covenant is absurd. He would not say, hey everyone, I'm the Messiah and now you have a new covenant, but it's really not eternal, it's only going to last seven years. Here again, I think we are victims of modern Bible prophecy teaching. It never says that he will say that he is setting up a seven-year covenant. It only says that it will last seven years. In fact, according to a lengthy study on grammar by the pulpit commentary, which I will link in the footnotes, it shows that the underlying Hebrew suggests this too. That study concludes by translating that part of the verse this way. The covenant shall prevail for many during one week. So, if this is accurate, then it seems clear that the seven-year time frame will not be announced to the people who are agreeing to it. He will in all probability say that this will be an eternal covenant. The mentioning of the seven years is therefore just God telling us how long this false covenant will really last. Note also that he says it will continue to last the entire seven years. It won't go away when the midpoint comes. Only daily sacrifices will be taken away, a point we discussed at length in the section on the abomination of desolation. Perhaps you can see now why this covenant is an argument for the case that the Antichrist will claim to be the Jewish Messiah. The Jews are wholeheartedly expecting the Messiah to do the exact thing that this oddly worded verse is saying, that is, confirm an already existing covenant and start the daily sacrifices. If anyone does this, you can bet your last dollar that they will be looked at as the Messiah by the Jews. The False Prophet There are not too many places in the scripture that discuss this person that will come to be known as the False Prophet, but the information we do have about him strongly supports the idea that the Antichrist will claim to be the Jewish Messiah. Let me first state what I think the false prophet is going to claim, and then I will go through some of the reasons why I think this. I am convinced that the false prophet will claim to be Elijah the prophet. Most of us know that the prophet Elijah, who was carried up to heaven in a whirlwind, was prophesied to come back to prepare the way for the Messiah. Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Isaiah 43 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The idea of Elijah coming back is so important in Jewish religious culture, it is hard to imagine that any Messiah figure could be considered by them unless he had a sidekick who claimed to be Elijah. We could spend quite some time talking about Jewish traditions regarding Elijah, things like setting out a chair for him during circumcision ceremonies, or a cup being poured out for him at the Passover meal. Even the Havdalah, a hymn that concludes every Sabbath, makes reference to his return. The hymn goes like this, quote, Elijah the prophet, Elijah the Tishbite, let him come quickly in our day with the Messiah, the son of David. I think we are given strong evidence that the false prophet will claim to be Elijah because the only prophetic, quote, sign that is mentioned specifically that he does in Revelation 13:13 13, 13, is that he calls down fire from heaven. This apparent miracle is crucially important. To anyone else in the world, calling down fire from heaven would be a neat trick, but nothing more. But to a Jew, if a prophet called down fire from heaven, it would be the same thing as declaring to be Elijah the prophet, who was the only prophet to do such an interesting sign, which he did three times. Combine this with the fervent Jewish expectation of Elijah's return, and it's easy to see that by this one act, the false prophet is setting himself up as Elijah. Once the false prophet has convinced the people that he is Elijah, he will be expected to point to the true Messiah. These miracles appear then to be a means to fulfilling his primary duty in Revelation 13, which is the promotion of the Antichrist, Revelation 13:12. 
It is interesting that around the same time in Jerusalem, the two witnesses, one of whom may very well be the real Elijah, will be able to stop the rain, which is another major miracle that Elijah did, as well as sending fire on people, Revelation 11.5. If one of these witnesses is Elijah, I wish I could say that he will be getting more attention than the fake one, the false prophet. But based on the joyful reaction of the people of Jerusalem when the two witnesses are killed, it seems that that is not to be. The people in Jerusalem celebrate and give gifts to one another when the two witnesses are killed, Revelation 11.10. It may seem that the two witnesses have the false prophet out Elijah because they are throwing fire around and stopping the rain, as Elijah did, whereas the false Elijah is only calling down fire from heaven. However, there are some interesting reasons to believe that the false prophet will do one of the other major miracles of Elijah, probably the most impressive of all, that is to raise someone from the dead, namely the Antichrist. I will explain this in detail in the section about Jewish end times beliefs, but if he does raise the dead, call down fire from heaven, and point to the Messiah, then it would be a very strong deception indeed for any Jew waiting for the real Elijah. So, the acts of the false prophet seem to be an attempt to pass himself off as the long-awaited return of Elijah, whose end times purpose is to turn people's hearts to the real Messiah, and because we know the false prophet uses his powers for the sole purpose of turning people to the Antichrist, it seems obvious that he is therefore going to claim that the Antichrist is the Messiah. Daniel 11.45 And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. This verse comes at a very interesting time in the book of Daniel. It comes right after the Antichrist has defeated most of the enemies of Israel, like Egypt and an Arab coalition. We will talk more about this in the chapter called The Wars of the Antichrist. And it comes right before the abomination of desolation and the beginning of the persecution that follows it in Daniel 12.1. So the Antichrist setting up his palace tents here occurs right around the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. I think this verse, like the others we have been looking at, help to bolster the case that the Antichrist will seek to present himself as the Jewish Messiah. And one of the reasons I say this is because of the placement of his headquarters, which I believe this verse is saying will be in Jerusalem, right in front of the rebuilt temple. The version that I have quoted above is from the New King James Version, which I have been primarily using for this book. But if one were to only look at the way the New King James Version has translated this verse, it would be easy to miss the location of the Antichrist's headquarters. It gives the impression that he sets up his palace tents between the Mediterranean Sea and the glorious Holy Mountain, which is speaking of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So you would think that he sets it up at some location between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. This is a very different translation of the original King James, and it's one of the few occasions where I feel the new King James, while trying to improve upon the King James, has made a big mistake. And I would submit that they probably did so more because of their personal beliefs rather than because of the underlying Hebrew. This is how the original King James renders this verse. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Here we have a totally different placement for the Antichrist's palace tents. It says that it will be between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. This translation is agreed upon by a number of very good modern translations, like the Net Bible and the International Standard Version as well. When it says between the seas, it is a reference to the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. This point is also footnoted in the Net Bible. If you look at a map of Israel, you will find that Jerusalem is located between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. The King James says that the palace tents will be in the Holy Mountain, where others translate this word as facing the Holy Mountain or toward the Holy Mountain. Either way, it seems that the intent is that the palace tents are very close to the Temple Mount. 
I will quote a few translations of this verse below for you to see them for yourself. And note that if the first part of the verse, about the palace tents being between the seas, is meant to be understood as Jerusalem, then the second part of the verse, about being in or facing the holy mountain, is there to give further clarification as to where specifically in Jerusalem he will set up his headquarters. In other words, you can see that the two parts of this verse are actually working together to give us very specific information about the location of the headquarters of the Antichrist. The International Standard Version says, when he pitches his royal pavilions between the seas, facing the mountain of holy glory. The Net Bible says, he will pitch his royal tents between the seas toward the beautiful holy mountain. The King James says, and he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. This also makes contextual sense as well, because this setting up of the palace tents occurs just before the Antichrist enters into the temple and declares himself to be God, which you can tell by seeing that this verse, 1145, is connected to 12.1, a fact often overlooked due to there being a chapter break between them. This would mean he is in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. He sets up his palace tents at the Temple Mount just before he enters the temple to declare himself to be God. The latter part of this verse describes the Antichrist being killed, but again, because of the chronological connection to Daniel 12.1, which describes the beginning of the great persecution, we can surmise that this is the point where the Antichrist is killed, only to be resurrected again, the head wound that was healed, Revelation 13. We will discuss this exact moment in detail in later chapters, because I believe this point, just after the wars of Antichrist, where he is killed and resurrected, is directly linked to the modern Jewish expectation of the so-called Messiah ben Joseph, and is crucial to understanding how the Antichrist will deceive people at this time. But for now, I only hope to make the point that if the Antichrist is said to make his capital in Jerusalem, in view of the Temple Mount, right after destroying the enemies of Israel, then it is strong support for the idea that the Antichrist is here attempting to fulfill two of the most important Jewish messianic expectations. Namely, that at his strongest, when the world is conquered by him, he makes Jerusalem the capital city of the world. This would seem to be fulfilling the non-negotiable expectation that Jerusalem will be the capital city of the world in messianic times, Isaiah 2, 1-4, as well as the expectation that the Messiah would be ruling from the very temple itself, Isaiah 18, 7. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.